light. It is so often taken for granted, we hardly think about it. So simple a child can recognize it, but so complex it boggles the mind of brilliant physicists. Light is the heart of astronomy. It emanates in surreal and inexplicable ways from stars, galaxies, and the cosmic variegated tapestries of distant nebulae. NASA and the ESA spend billions of dollars annually to study the enigmatic nature of light in the universe. And it is the light from the sun that enables us to breathe, to see, and to live. Light can be beautiful, powerful, blinding, painful, piercing, and both deadly and life-giving. Light from the sun fecundates our soils, warms us, inspires us, and guides us along our path, illuminating our darkness. The sun is the light by which we see everything else. And it is a relatively recent discovery that much of light itself is actually invisible to the naked eye. Both sun and light are creations of our Lord Jesus Christ. They remind us of who our God is and what our God is like. What is visible reminds us of what is invisible. The light of our sun and the other stars reflect and declare the glory of God. The sun can be understood and appreciated in a multitude of different ways. But first and foremost, it is best understood as created by God for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years, and for his glory. Quote, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. End quote. That is from Psalm 148, verses 1 through 3. Quote, and they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of thy signs. Thou dost make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. End quote. Psalm 65, verse 8. Psalm 19 declares that the heavens tell of the glory of God, and their expanse declares the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is like a groom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices like a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Modern astronomical sciences are primarily concerned with understanding the technical apparatus of how the sun works, how the planets orbit it, how it burns fuel and gives light and sits upon an invisible canopy of space-time fabric. In ancient and medieval times, however, the question was how God, the unmoved mover, could be the author of all the celestial motion we observe. The Greek philosopher Aristotle posited that, quote, he moves as beloved, end quote, as the poet Dante concluded in his masterful divine comedy, it is love that moves the sun and other stars. Motion was caused by a God who is love, who does not change, by God with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, much as the objects of our affection move us into action. A husband's love for his wife moves him to act on her behalf. 
This is the poetry of Psalm 19. The sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. The sun and other stars are moved by love. As C.S. Lewis observed, the medieval's primum mobile, their model of the sun, planets, and stars which comprise the whole universe, is, quote, moved by its love for God, and being moved communicates its love for God and being, end quote. Modern science, however, is silent about God's love in relation to the solar system and the universe as a whole. Instead of love moving the sun on other stars, we are told impersonal forces are enacted in the cosmos to create the motion we see. There is no agent, no creator, no love, no intention or purpose for the universe or ourselves coming into being. We are the impersonal result of blind forces alone, cosmic accidents in a universe that wants to kill us. But these conclusions, often reached by purveyors of secularism, are not scientific conclusions at all. Certainly modern science has discovered a variety of fantastic and inexplicable mathematical descriptions of relationships between matter and energy, which also attest to divine intelligence. But any astrophysicist, secular or religious, will tell you that whatever was at work in the beginning of our universe was wholly different than what we now understand. In the end, modern scientific explanations for the sun and other stars don't negate the truth of Scripture that the creation of the universe was first and foremost an act of love and divine glory. In the beginning, God, who is love, created the heavens and the earth. The sun and other stars are a direct testament to the love of God and the glory of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But like a supernova, the death of a star, Jesus, the bright and morning star and glory of God incarnate, the one who created the sun and other stars, suffered a cataclysmic and violent death for our sin and the sin of the whole world. The Son of God died brutally and in agony, hanging and slowly suffocating from the roughly hewn wooden beams of a Roman cross. All the Gospels give us an account of Jesus' agony. Matthew, for example, tells us that the sun was darkened at midday, Matthew 27:45. In the death of his son, God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Presently, no astronomical theories can explain what happened to the sun for about six hours as it sat in a terrible darkness the day Jesus died. The earth also quaked and reeled like a drunken man, and many of the dead came out of their tombs. The shockwaves of the death of the Son of God darkened the heavens and shook the earth. Truly, this was the Son of God, said the centurion who stood nearby. And in the end of time, just prior to Jesus' return, the sun will not give its light. Both secular astronomy and scripture agree on this point. There will come a day when the sun as we know it will be no more. Though the explanations differ as to how that will happen, the end is the same. The sun as we know it will bow to its creator, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
having faithfully served the purposes for which it was made. The new Jerusalem will, quote, have no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb, end quote. Revelation 21, 23. So come along with Wayne and me on this two-part episode of Good Heavens as we explore our wonderful sun and how it points to the glory of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, good heavens, Wayne. The sun is shining, and it's a new episode. How are you today? I'm good, Dan, and uh, here we go again. Here we go again. We are going to give this a whirl. We are talking about something that is uh, as obvious as the sun in the sky. Oh, wait. It is the sun in the sky. (laughs) That's what we're talking about today, the sun. So, yeah, and we're going to kind of stop and think about what it means and some interesting things to think about and how yeah. does it relate to God. And yeah. Right, right. So it's not just, this isn't, uh, if you're new to Good Heavens, uh, we'll talk about some science. Uh, we certainly will and give you some brief facts that you can dig into for yourself. Uh, but we also say, well, how does this relate? We're always trying to relate it to Scripture as best we can. Um with as wide of an interpretation that 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 any Christian can can agree with us for the most part, and so we try to tie it back into the glory of God because that's what the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sun is part of that glory. And so we're going to talk about uh, the the closest star to our planet, the sun. So um, let's begin, Wayne, where it all began, in the book. Of Genesis, yes, yeah. So, what's interesting, and you've seen this because you've been in apologetics like I have, and you've been into the science and the solar systems, and your expertise as planets, especially Pluto. But the Sun is uh, a star; it's rather amazing. It's the closest star to our little planet, Um, and and God created it. Now, when you get into Genesis, of course. And like I said a minute ago, you know, you know, you and I have been, both been a part of the apologetic community for a long time. Uh, you longer than I have, actually. Um, but increasingly and disappointingly, you see a lot of Christians, whether they're maybe liberal or some that would consider themselves mainstream, that would look at the creation account in Genesis and think that you couldn't take it uh, as it happened the way Moses wrote it. Uh, so never mind the the liberal debates about we don't know who wrote Genesis. Jesus affirms that Moses wrote Genesis, and so we will trust that the Lord knows the author of Genesis and can believe that. But the account in Genesis, Wayne, has our son coming into being on day four of creation after God creates living things. And that is anathema to science today. And I say, when yes. I say living things, I say uh, plants and vegetation. Now, there was no creatures like, you know, beasts 
and things like that. Um, uh, no birds or fish, that comes after the sun. But the sun came after plants, and the sun came after um, morning and evening of the first three days. So this is anathema to modern science, Wayne. Yes, and uh, and so in, in Genesis chapter 1, it describes light because there's a day-night cycle before mm-hmm. the sun is created. Yeah. And uh, there's always been some questions about that, and it doesn't Genesis doesn't really explain that but you know i think the point is that we should not worship the sun i mean there are people at the right. time of the writing of genesis who really did worship the sun yes and and but god is the source of everything right so light comes from god so everything is really from god whether there's a light a lighted object <laughs> like the sun or not okay the sun right. is an object it's a it's a thing it's a created but, thing but god can provide light with or without things right he does not need the mediation <laughs> of something he created in order to perform a task right so, so. often light christians is some, sometimes called the sun a light bearer it's not a yeah right a, a, but god can provide for us with or without the sun and if, and one more thing, Dan, is in the end, if you read the book of Revelation, you find again there's no need for a son because right. he, he, God creates a new heavens and a new earth, mm-hmm. and it says there's no need for the light of, a son, of the sun because the Lord God will be the light. Right. The sun, you might say, is an intermediary between us and God, declaring glory in a way that we can understand Initially, the sun, as it was created, uh, as described in Genesis, was for uh, signs and for seasons and for days and for years. It's a timepiece. It's an ancient clock that goes all the way back to God setting this up for us to know something about him. But as you say in uh, verse 3 of Genesis, let there be light and there was light. Um, this is God. God is the source of light. I think it's John eight twelve, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then in Matthew five fourteen through 16, he, sa- he calls us the light of the world. So if we are created in God's image, I like what you said earlier, the sun is a light bearer. Well, so are we, Wayne. We bear the light of Christ. Yes. And what's fascinating to me is that the stars and the sun aren't going to last. You just said this in Revelation, that the new heavens aren't going to have a sun. And the stars that we see today are not going to be around forever. But Wayne, you and I will be around forever. That's the the wonderful thing about the fascinating thing that one at one point we didn't exist, and then God brought us into existence, and now we will live forever in Christ. But until He returns, we are like the stars that shine. That's what Daniel twelve three says. Those who turn many to righteousness will be like the stars that shine forever and ever. But I think principally, you know, in Genesis, we have plants that come before the sun, which says God sustains life with or without sunlight. Uh, As uh, the psalmist says in 139, I think it's David, uh, the light and the darkness are alike to God, and he can sustain the living uh, things without the intermediary of things, right? Uh, he calls that which is not into being. He, ra- he rose Jesus from the dead, and he gives life to all things. And so the sun 
does come before uh, plants and things. Now, there are some people that say, well, uh, the sun wasn't revealed until day four. But that's kind of an interpolation that's not really in the text. The text is pretty clear. The sun was not created until day four, the word bara, right? Uh, yeah, and I, well, I, I think uh, that would go against the pattern and the way that the Bible is describing the first day, actually. Right, right. Um, and so God defines day like morning and evening. He defines the parameters of the day, but doesn't need the sun and the moon to do that. Those are for our benefit. Those declare the glory of God and help us to keep the passage of time. That's what mm-hmm. he sets them up for. Genesis one fourteen. God said, "Let there." Then God said, "Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and for years." And God, we don't even name the, the the lights here. They don't call them sun and moon because in Egyptology and all the other pagan nations, they had names for these. Um, and this was a repudiation of solar worship. That yes. these these things are things that God made. They are not beings to be worshipped. Interestingly enough, along that point, um, one of the episodes, I think it's either Lives of Stars, which is a Cosmos episode, Carl Sagan, uh, he says, Carl Sagan says that uh, our ancestors worshipped the sun. I mean, he was right. There's all kinds of solar wo- uh, worship in the ancient world. And he said, uh, Carl Sagan goes on to say that, uh, you know, they were far from foolish for worshiping the sun. And he says, if we should worship a power greater than ourselves, shouldn't we worship the sun and other stars? Because why? What's the assumption of modernity, Wayne, that we didn't come from God? Uh, We came from, all the atoms in our body came from stars that exploded. So you you hear the common phrase that we are star stuff. Now... From a Christian perspective, I would say that just because we have similar atoms in our body that you find in stars doesn't mean we came from stars any more than saying, hey, the matter in the pages of a book I have in my house are just like the matter in the pages in the books that Wayne has at his house. Therefore, the books in my house must have come from Wayne's house. That that doesn't make any sense. Um, but But God used similar material to create both stars. And human beings. Well, yeah, and that I know why they say that. You know, it goes back to their beliefs about the Big Bang, right? And and how stars kind of go through a, a sort of a lifetime and an end, and then they they reform um, from from the uh, remnants of a supernova. Another other stars form. It's interesting too, Wayne, because if um, if if entropy is what it is, that the, the usable energy in the universe is running down, it's hard to explain stellar evolution. We did a whole podcast on how do stars form. Um, and yet it seems star formation in modern evolutionary cosmology, like the universe is a long, slow, gradual process of development where things come together and are created, uh, the mechanisms that that are offered for how the sun and the stars are created without God sounds a lot like, I mean, you hear the word stellar evolution. And no, they're not really nodding to Darwin, but in the same sense, Wayne, that the cosmological model development of the universe sounds very similar to a lot of the assumptions that you would find in Darwinian natural selection. This long, slow, gradual process over time from a small thing. Yes, and they're believing in 
processes that can't really be observed. They just right. interpret certain things in in terms of a story. Right. And um, so it's all um, a, a kind of way of trying to explain things without God. And I don't think it's a really, really even a good scientific explanation. There's a, there's lots of mysteries about star formation or or planet right. formation. Right, right. Um, well, you you I remember you brought this up before we turned the mics on. That book you discovered at your house a couple of years ago when we did a podcast. Uh, what that that old cosmologist said from a book from what the 1960s or 70s. You know, what it was did he a, say? it was an old book by uh, Martin Harwit. Um, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the quote really right now, but s- something about um, stars, maybe stars form from nothing at all. That's right. It would be easier to explain it <laughs> if they just came into being. Yeah. Uh, because there are so many mysteries that surround how stars began to form. Because you hear the stories about, well, there was some matter. Then there was a next-door neighbor house exploded, like the star exploded close to this cloud of dust. The shock waves from the supernova condensed the gas and the dust in the cloud, and a star starts forming. And that's like, uh, that, that, that process, whatever it is, had to have happened over and over and over and over again because there are so many countless stars in the universe that whatever the star formation, natural star formation process is, it, it, it has to happen regularly and routinely. And the mechanisms that are offered in modern cosmology just seem to boggle the imagination when it comes to how in the world could these possibly have, could this process possibly have happened over and over and over and over again? Because if you try to condense gas too much, what happens? It expands. It tries to expand. It, there's magne- magnetism involved. You can't squish gas together easily. Yeah, you know? it becomes and, stable against collapse, as physicists would say, because it stops. Uh-huh. It's, gravity alone is not enough. Right. So they say, well, somebody, something is just packing these things in so tightly, and then you get this core that's that's super packed, not too hot, not too just the right temperature that doesn't explode or it doesn't implode. And it's it's like a knife edge, a, a, a knife edge balance between nuclear fusion and gravity. And this happens over and over and over again without any kind of intelligence or input. And uh, so this is, I was just reading this morning about how our sun was formed out of this very same process. Uh, there was a, a nebula, a cloud of gas early on, and there were some uh, more dense parts of this cloud And then maybe a nearby supernova started to condense and collapse the cloud until it became a core that ignited like a charcoal. And then it just accreted and and gathered more gas and dust into its center as the center became more dense. And then it ignited nuclear fusion, and lo, here we are. And, yes, well, of course, you know, I'm skeptical about that, Dan, but I'm familiar with it. So another kind of problem that happens somewhat related to this. Let's assume that Earth and the Sun did form. Now, if you kind of project back from what we know about stars and project what the Sun would be doing back in the past, you know, it's there's a window of time in which scientists would say life had to start from non-living matter. And they talk about the window of time from about point. Two billion years ago to 3.8 billion years ago. Somehow in that time, life had to get started from chemicals. 
And we've talked about that problem in another podcast about comets that we did, Dan. But anyway, (laughs) uh, somewhere in that time is when life has to evolve and start evolving, the first cell. Now, in that time frame, there's a problem with the sun. Because at that time, the sun would give off about 25 or 30 percent less energy than it does today. Hmm. Because of the solar physics and what we know about the about stars, so you have a problem that's been called the early faint sun problem. Okay, what is that? Or the early faint sun paradox. So the paradox is that how could life get started when the sun was faint? It was weak. It was giving off a lot less energy. Because I see, yeah. this is a great deal less energy from the sun. So much less that Earth would be a frozen ice ball. Okay, okay. Earth really would be a frozen ball of ice. So we're talking about going back. Uh, your the, this this problem goes back to um, basically life. If we accept a naturalist paradigm, Darwinian evolution. Or, well, Darwinian evolution doesn't deal with the origin of life. Let's be clear about that. We're not suggesting that it does. Right. But the origin of life studies suggest. That life had to have begun, as you say, about four and a half billion years ago. Um, is that correct? So we're looking at well, there's debate the sun. about when. So some would say four point two billion or four point zero billion. They debate about the exact time. And so if we go back that far and we trace the solar, the development, uh, a naturalistic development of our own sun, this theory is suggesting that our our sun. Four and a half billion years ago would have been too faint for life to have begun. Is that what, is that the general thesis? Right. So, what the way the way, the way they try to work this out is, uh, you, it has to be a little time after Earth formed, so that the surface of Earth is not too hot, because they think Earth's surface was molten and very very hot for a long time, mm-hmm. and there was volcanoes giving off a lot of gases. And the gases formed Earth's first, Earth's early atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And the way they try to get around the, the frozen Earth problem, is uh, from gases and the greenhouse effect, keeping the Earth uh, hot. So it's Earth has a hot beginning, and then the gases start a greenhouse effect that kind of keeps the earth warm for a long time mm-hmm. until life can come along. That's how they try to explain it. I don't think that I don't think it works, but that's the concept. Well you also if the sun is uh less bright, it's probably less dense. Um and so there are other aspects to consider about you know, what's the moon doing gravitationally how much mass does the sun have versus what's the mass to uh, earth to sun mass ratio uh, what's the orbit like of our planet what what's the tilt what's going on so there's a lot of um you know as i said in our uh, i said to a friend the other night um you know if we applied higher biblical criticism the kind of people the kind of ways in which people critique the texts of the bible and one of the chief problems being that a lot of people will say, well, that was a couple of thousand of years ago. And, you know, it's a lot of hearsay and a lot of mistakes could have been added to the text over thousands of years. So we just don't know what the authors said. But then you get into the science of the sun or biology and you go back billions of years and nobody seems to bat an eyelash 
about the the possible discrepancies that might have existed. I mean, who knows, Wayne, what things were like billions of years ago. I don't even know what happened yesterday in, in most of my neighborhood. <laughs> I can yeah, extrapolate. Well. I can extrapolate, but... But we're going back. We're talking. We're talking a, a, a time scale that is that is virtually just impractical and inconceivable for human beings. Uh, we're not necessarily saying it's it's wrong about how you know God created this per se. I mean, maybe He did things this way. But if we're talking about without God, the scenarios that are posited are uh, oftentimes, as you say, unempirically unverifiable we can't we can extrapolate but we can't verify and test uh cosmology is largely a theoretical discipline right and uh, in when you tell deal with different planets you know i've studied extrasolar planets and mm-hmm. um com- if you compare our solar system to other systems with planets uh ours is unusual and I think of the sun and the earth as a kind of matched set. Yeah, they're really absolutely. they're like a matched set. They right. if if right. the sun were not uh, have didn't have certain qualities, it wouldn't be good for life on Earth. And if so, Earth needs the right materials, and the sun has to provide enough energy and be at the right distance. And there's there's a number of things about the sun that are well suited to us if for one thing the sun is very stable yeah. it's really really unusually stable as a that star that is it is there there are there are uh, solar storms and ejections of, of material and and radiation from the sun but they are calm and relatively tame mm-hmm. compared to many other stars right right and uh, er, the sun's rotation is not as fast as some stars, mm-hmm. and that makes the magnetic field uh, effects a little bit less and calmer. Yeah. Uh, so the sun has a magnetic field, Dan, that is very, very powerful, and it stretches out uh, a long distance, way beyond Pluto. Yeah. Uh, it's called the heliosphere, mm-hmm. and and that heliosphere is a magnetic shield that protects us from cosmic rays from the galaxy. So we are in um, a kind of, um, not a snow globe, but a sun globe. We are literally yeah. like encased in a kind of uh, sun bubble, uh, yeah. the solar system is. And it's it's true, I think, uh, it was just recently, this past year or so, where the Voyager 1 satellites broke through the heliosphere. That's right. And discovered some weird stuff. I don't know what it is. We need to do a podcast on what did the Voyagers see when they went through yeah. the heliosphere. Because So that's first man-made objects to penetrate the heliosphere, to go outside the boundary of our solar system. And they've encountered some things. I don't know what exactly they've encountered, not aliens or anything, but uh, uh, they, they encountered some unexpected data. Um, one thing yeah. I was reading in preparation for, uh, for our talk, and this is a good, it's a good science book if you're interested. It's called Nearest Star. The Surprising Science of Our Sun. It's a second edition by Leon Goulb and J.M. Pasikoff, and they are astronomers. And uh, the first edition of the book came out in 2001. Uh, second editions followed shortly. But uh, they say, uh, they're talking, now this is in 2001. So this is about not eight years before the uh, Kepler Planetary Hunter Telescope went up. 
And uh, that telescope has has exponentially blown our minds away with finding extrasolar planets. I mean, there's thousands now. Uh, back in 2001, there were there weren't that many. But now it's interesting that these gentlemen say, and this is back in 2001, that um, in recent years, this is a quote, we have seen many types of solar systems containing the thousands of exoplanets that have been discovered and realize that most of them are very different in format from our own solar system. And I love what they say here. They say, quote, generalizing from our own solar system turned out to be very wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the Kepler Planetary Hunter telescope and uh, since uh, subsequent discoveries of exoplanets have shown, Wayne, that our solar system is unique among solar systems where what they're finding is the inverse of our solar system where they have the gas giants uh, close to the sun and rocky planets out farther away. So that's actually what they see more commonly are the reverse of our solar system. Uh, We seem to be in the minority with our rocky planets close to the sun and the gaseous giants out on the peripheral uh, we anticipated before before we found exoplanets, Wayne. What was the what was the overriding consensus that our solar system is normative? This is the way uh, all solar systems would be if we discovered them. Uh, yeah, the s- scientists had kind of worked out a model for how our solar system formed, and they expected other solar systems around other stars right. to form a similar way. But uh, many of the these other systems don't actually have rocky planets. But some of them do. We do. We have detected some of the rocky planets. Mm-hmm. They're a little harder to detect sometimes because they're smaller. They're smaller, and then the it's easier to detect the planets that are closer to these stars mm-hmm. because they they make the sun the star wobble more. Right. Right. And uh, so that's part of the whole thing. But uh, there's sometimes several uh, gaseous planets. And no rocky planets, and there's sometimes r- rocky planets, and sometimes the the gaseous planets are so close to the star that the star is sucking gas off of the uh, off of the planet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and some of these systems, as you know, um, we are now discovering more with our improved technology, discovering more and more systems, uh, star systems. Um, like the fantasy scene in Star Wars, where Luke is looking at the sunset on Tatooine and its two suns, we are discovering more and more now that uh, I think it was David Bradstreet in our book who pointed out that uh, 60% of the known stars in the universe have at least one companion. And so that would put our sun in the minority because as far as we know, our sun does not have a, a, a companion. It's a solitary star. Yeah, and when you're saying companion, you mean another star, another, so they, another the, star, not a planet. Yeah, but another star. so they kind of orbit to orbit right. each other, and right. some are, some are triple, and, right, and quadruple, and there are yeah, binary systems that are visual. <laughs> you can see with the naked eye. There are contact mm-hmm. binary systems where one star is drawing off another star. There are spectroscopic binary stars where the stars orbit so close to one another, you can only tell there's another one there by how the spectra of one star changes into the spectra of another star, which indicates Mm -hmm. the passing of a star in front of the other, and you can only tell this through a spectrometer. 
Uh, yeah. Fascinating, fascinating things going on out there with these double stars. But, but our star, as you say, Wayne, it's calm. It doesn't have a companion. It's the only star in the known universe that we know of that has a planet going around it with giraffes. <laughs> That's right, and roses, and roses, and uh, right. and uh, um, um, you know all kinds of things. Uh, roses and stars and coffee and uh, and and good heavens. It's the only and, and, uh, s- uh, the only oh and, st- oh, and uh, uh, the platypus, <laughs> the platypus, right? It's, right. Platypus is like my favorite animal, right? I'm, or really I like uh, beluga whales. Beluga whales, the only planet with beluga <laughs> whales on it. So when you hear the, the, the mantra from people that say our sun is an average star, not really. I'm not, I'm not going to give you that. <laughs> not, until, right. not until we find millions of other stars with planets with life on them. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, too, and this is another topic that we thought about discussing um, aliens and ancient aliens and, and what are aliens out there. We've done a, we've done a series on UFOs, but we want to get back into this uh, alien question at some point in the future but uh the idea that uh that well our sun evolved and our planets evolved and well life on earth evolved the assumption of aliens is really rooted in this idea of a slow long gradual process not only of the of the universe but of planets and of biological life if it happened here certainly it must have happened somewhere else but that that's really predicated upon a naturalistic view of how uh, the universe and life came to be, isn't it? Yes, and um, you know, Dan, there's a a verse in the Bible that I it came to mind. I was going to yeah share talk about, and you know, the Bible gives a a non naturalistic view. <laughs> okay? You can say that again, <laughs> and, and where it, it makes things in nature uh, relevant to God and to teach us about God. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like that. And it's always fascinating. So this is a verse in Psalm 84 in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to read a few verses around this to kind of get the idea here. So this is Psalm 84 verses 10 through 12. It says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell on the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The hmm. Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Wow. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. I love that. I have often uh, cited Psalm eighty four eleven in presentations where uh, I give examples from the sun and the earth. So what do we have in Psalm 84, 11? Our God is, it's a metaphor, our God is a sun and shield. So Right. So, let's, and let's think about this. I, how would they have understood this? I think right. in, uh, saying the Lord God is the sun is probably talking about God's provision. And it says he bestows favor and honor. So it's talking about God's provision. I think you know the sun uh, allows us to uh, allows earth to be warm and um, for there to be light for plants to grow food for us. So the sun is part of God's provision of food for us and uh, and protects us and provides life for us in ways. And then it says uh, the Lord God is the sun and shield and the I was just talking about how the sun is a shield, 
mm-hmm. uh, from cosmic rays. So it is that uh, the sun it can also be dangerous to us, Dan. Uh, so God is sovereign over these things, and God can protect us from whatever happens. But um, there are times when events on the sun give off a lot of radiation that affects us here on Earth. Right, and I think there the- was a there was a some event on the on the sun right around the time of the. Uh, cold spell that happened in february 20- yes yes we had uh we we called here in texas snowmageddon yeah uh, we had uh sub-zero temperatures for a week or so in uh, february of this year and uh there was a correlation and the science is still out there but there was a correlation between and i, I just read this this morning there's a uh cycle uh called uh, that that solar astronomers call the maunder minimum and it was discovered, uh, well, to, to, to be quick about it, the Maunder minim, Minimum is a period on the sun of low sunspot activity. In other words, in the, in the I believe it's the 17th century, the 1600s, um, there were, um, it was observed that uh, the 17th and 18th centuries, um, it was observed, and Galileo did this. He drew, he had drawings. It was in 1610, I think. So, yeah, it goes back to Galileo. Uh, he observed uh, sunspots. And you can kind of do this. We don't recommend it, but don't stare at the sun uh, directly. But if there are as cloudy days, and uh, you can see kind of the disk of the sun through clouds, uh, some of these sunspots are noticeable with the naked eye, but we're not encouraging you to try this. Don't ever look at the sun without filters of some kind. Uh, I don't know how Galileo looked through the telescope at his son without damaging his eyesight, but he, but uh, apparently he did this a couple of times. Anyway, recorded some sunspots, and so there was a heightened activity from about 1610 uh, till about 1650. And then around the time of 1650-1660, Wayne, these sunspots disappeared. They just stopped. And uh, what they are basically are cool spots on the surface of the sun that look dark because the rest of the sun is hot and bright. These are uh, spots that begin in, let's just call it the northern hemisphere of the sun because the sun has an equator. They begin in the northern part of the sun, and then by the time that they desist, they are closer to the equator of the sun by about 15 degrees, and so another cycle will start. And these sunspot cycles last about 11 years. Well, there was a period from about 1650 to about 1710 or the 1700s, uh, so about 60 years or 70 years or so, there were no sunspots. And this is what is now known in astronomical history as the Maunder Minimum. And during this Maunder Minimum, there was a connection to a cold snap, a mini ice age in Europe. And so there's this idea that perhaps the sunspot activity or the lack of sunspot activity has something to do with cooler weather, cooler winters on our planet. And uh, as you say, interesting, this happened just this past year. Uh, There seems to be a connection with low sunspot activity and unusually cold temperatures. But, uh, yeah, and Dan, we should talk about the magnetic field of the sun. So. Yeah, I want to get, I want to finish up. You had some a wonderful thought. We'll we'll talk about that. But before you do, don't forget to to, to get me back to that, so I don't go too off field. Um, the you, with the sun and the shield verse, Psalm eighty four eleven again. Um, yeah, Jesus is is uh, 
you know, both fully God and fully man, right? So we, he, he, he is God in the flesh. And I like to think of the sun and shield as, as kind, of a, a kind of pointing toward that, that God has many attributes, of course, but I like the juxtaposition of sun and shield when we think of our own planet. Of course, this wasn't known to the ancients, but uh, our Earth has a magnetic field, and it looks like, and when you see it in diagrams and astronomy books, the way that it's drawn, the magnetic field, the large face of it, it looks like a spider, and a large part of it is facing toward the sun. And interestingly, when a sun has an eruption, a coronal mass ejection, it's like a sun sneeze. The sun sneezes. And when it sneezes, it sneezes <laughs> several hundred, hundred thousand tons of stuff. And it mm. flies at us at nearly the speed of light. And if we did not have a shield, Wayne, if we did not have a shield, this stuff would basically be like a razor going through your hair. Uh, the sun, <laughs> the corona mass ejections would just graze the earth and strip it of everything. It would be like a, a, like a power sprayer taking paint off of a wall or something. Um, but because of our shield, these coronal mass ejections and all this solar detritus that gets thrown at us is deflected. And, and it reveals these beautiful auroras. If you've ever been in the northern hemisphere of, of the Earth uh, and you've seen these things, right. they're beautiful curtains of green and purples and blues and uh, of light. And these are the solar particles interacting with the Earth's magnetic shield and, and, and atmosphere. But I thought of, I think of God. I think of the sun as God in all of his holiness and Jesus as our shield. Right, because he shields us from the wrath of God by taking his our sin upon himself, and so literally, when God, you know, the, the commandments come at us, when God, you know, our God is a consuming fire, and nobody can stand before him. You know, who can survive the holiness of God? Not sinful human beings. And so Jesus becomes our shield. He takes what the Father he takes the Father's wrath. He 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 he, and he gives us protection from God's wrath and forgives us of our sin and gives us his righteousness. And so in that way, in a spiritual sense, we can see God as both a son and a shield, uh, that Jesus is the shield and the son is, is the father. And, you know, there's, there's a lot to that. I'm being uh, poetic here and making yeah. sp- spiritual allusions here. But, but I think the text and, and the, the dynamics in the cosmos reveal to us God's invisible attributes. So certainly there's nothing wrong with considering the sun in light of God's holiness. Nobody can stand before the sun. And, right, and, you know, and Dan, we're, uh, like I like to say, we're vulnerable in the sense that <laughs> we, are, we, are, um, we live on the earth. We, we don't have control over these things in, in nature, in, in right. the universe. Right. And, but God has provided for us in a way that keeps us safe. 